Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brennan Buddha. This episode, we are concluding our coverage of the entire novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Today, we are thrilled to be joined again by the Hugo-nominated Wolf scholar, Mark Aramini. Mark, of course, is the author of Between Light and Shadow, which explores Wolf's early fiction, as well as a number of scholarly videos discussing the solar cycle and other Wolf novels. If you haven't checked out his work, you really, really should. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, and, and thank you very much for having me again. I feel like, you know, three times you must like me or something. That's the, absolutely the case. Yeah. yeah. All right, excellent. <laughs> and our secret plan is, to, of course, to have to make it 30 before this project is all okay. done. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should get some other guys on here, too, you know, just to, just to have a real round robin, but that sounds like a great idea. Let's just tell listeners what our, our plan is today, which is basically just to ask Mark a bunch of questions that we have about this book. Uh, some of our questions are uh, about the writing and the structure of the book, uh, also about some of the, the textual errors that might be significant. And of course, you talked quite a bit about that, Mark, last time you were on the show. Uh, but as we have already said in our previous wrap-up episodes building up to this one, what we really want is to just give Mark some room to present a, a reading that ties in all the big questions about this book that, that counters our, our own extremely conservative answers. So, Mark, I think we might just start with the extremely broad and extremely leading question of asking you, what is your understanding of uh, Shadow Children and ABOs and uh, VRT's identity? Okay, and you know, this is one of those questions that, from the very publication of the book, has really haunted readers, right? You have this character who's incarcerated here at the end who says that he is John Marsh, but yet at the same time, there's even memories that seem to be of a strictly indigenous childhood. How do you reconcile this, right? And so I want to talk about the consensus reading that kind of happened from the time that, you know, John Clute started writing about it uh, with, with, with Peter Wright and Borsky. They all kind of endorsed this reading, which is that when you go out in the wilderness with an aborigine, right, that can change shapes, uh, one of the things that might happen is that he might take your shape and assume your life, especially if he's interested in, let's say, anthropology and escaping uh, an environment that he feels is no longer something that, that is in his best interest, right? So you get this weird exchange at the end, at the very end of that third novella, where um, Marsh is interviewing you know, the boy that he's initialed as VRT, and he's like, do you think that I could be an anthropologist, really? So you almost get the sense that this is something that he wants to do. So the reading that they have then is that in the back of Beyond out there, um, the boy Victor Trenchard really does take the place of Marsh. He assumes his shape and then kind of goes in into the wilderness and eventually returns to travel to St. Croix and be arrested, incarcerated, and go through all of that. So I was reading, you know, The Fifth Head of Cerberus thinking, can I add anything to this? This was back in maybe 2012, 2013. And I thought, wow, there's a whole lot of things from the middle novella that don't add up at all. I mean, they're like so many little details, uh, so many small things. And I said, there has to be something more that we can extrapolate from this and, and make this central novella work to explain what's going on later. Because you have all these things with trees and the shadow children, and theirs is basically only involving 
humans and aborigines. But in that middle novella, you have the human landing, but you also have different um, types of aboriginal tribes and groups. And then you have these shadow children, which seem to be extremely different. And so are they all actually at work and present in the text? So I just have a question for you guys, and then I'll continue a little more. At the very end, it seems as if Marsh writes remembering things that could only have happened to Trenchard, right? Like, oh, and then my mom took me down to the lake to wash my clothes and and these kind of things. How did you guys deal with that? It was like right in the last 20 pages or so of the book. How did you guys handle that one? We don't believe that VRT is a shape-shifting alien. We believe that he's a human being. We believe that Dr. Marsh is a human being and that Dr. Marsh died in the back of beyond. And so it is a very human type of identity theft uh, impersonation, not uh, shape-shifting. Okay. Now, one of the things that uh, I think you have to confront in that reading is that Marsh shows up at the early part of the first novella, and then he goes for a couple years, and then he comes back. And I think that might be after his sojourn in the wilderness. I'd have to reread that first novella again to verify that. But, you know, he's recognizable by by number five. That's something that we encountered in in Borsky uh, as as well, which we we didn't actually mention when we were doing our recap episodes. Uh, that's problematic because it is actually contradicted by Constant in the interrogations, who has uh, all of the transit records of John V. Marsh of Doctor Marsh in okay. front of him, and and does not uh, give us information that would support that theory, and in fact, would con- gives us information that contradicts that that reading. Okay, okay, great. Because mine is a little different, um, but the thing that is is key, right, is one of the things that I, I do when I look at Gene Wolfe's stories is say, okay, is there a way that everything can be true, right, at the same time, whether it's literally, symbolically, metaphorically, and there's a scene in here where you have the boy falling from a great height and dying. It's his death scene at the end, and when he falls, the branch of a tree seems to reach out to try and catch him, right, and this is this is depicted in such a way that even though Marsh never seems to understand the importance of what these trees are, um, certainly the the culture there understands it, right? They're like, okay, these, these are the trees that we have such reverence for, the trees that have travel, as they're called at certain points. So you get the sense that there's a tree reaching out for a boy who falls and, and dies, according to Marsh's story there, or to the notes that we have. And so I was like, how could we possibly reconcile this so that this could be true and we could still have a character with the memories of of Trenchard there. And so I'm going to just real quickly talk about um, an article that Peter Wright wrote a while ago, because he makes a lot of claims about Marsh as a human character and Trenchard as a character that has kind of taken his place, but is in kind of an ideal situation because he's juxtaposed then in between the two worlds, right? The colonial um, and the colonized, right? Those, those, those word, worlds there that always create such problems when you look at saying, okay, who is who when you've been completely conquered and subjugated by another culture? How can you possibly go backward? So I'm just going to read like two or three paragraphs, and then I want to go into um, more specifics about my reading of this, if you don't mind. No, that would be amazing. And this is this is great, because I think this is the type of conversation we really want to be having right now about our reading and about your reading. Okay, so I'm just going to read the first three paragraphs of an article. It's called Confounding the Skin and the Mask, and you can find it at Alton's Library Online. And it's about the politics of ambiguity in the fifth head of Cerberus. Since its publication in 1972, 
The fifth head of Cerberus, Gene Wolfe's collection of three interlinked novellas, has earned a reputation for being the author's most perplexing single volume. Such a reputation is entirely justified since ambiguity is the watchword to the text. More significantly, it is also an organizing principle of form, a means of confounding interpretation, and a fundamental theme associated with Wolfe's defining authorial obsessions, the subjectivity of perception, the unreliability of memory, and the nature of identity. To draw attention to the presence of equivocation in the fifth head of Cerberus is hardly original, as every critic and reviewer to approach the text decided its influence as a source of their own puzzlement, their sense of inadequacy, and at times their despair. Hints, hints, damnable hints and clues. That's all there is in Gene Wolfe's stories, little pieces of the jigsaw. One is never quite sure there's a pattern to the jigsaw, declares Bruce Gillespie, making no attempt to disguise his exasperation at his subject's abstruseness. However... Few critics have recognized that the introduction of ambiguity in the fifth head of Cerberus has a political purpose engaged directly with colonial and post-colonial situations and concerns. So he's basically saying that the ambiguity there is the whole point of the post-colonial exploration. You can no longer tell who is who. Everything's been kind of blurred. He talks a little bit about Joan Gordon's reading, and then he goes on to say that the key post-colonial concepts are mimicry, hybridity, and kind of this binary representation. Um, so I'm going to read like two more paragraphs, and then I'll, I'll get into some more specifics here. In Lost Peoples, a review of the fifth head of Cerberus, which appeared in Vector in 1973, Pamela Sargent recognizes from the outset that Wolf's novellas are political as well as philosophical, perceiving their colonial focus as indicative of their plea for understanding those whose cultures are unlike our own. Where Gordon mentions the association between the Australian and the Anise Aborigines only in relation to Wolfe's borrowing of ideas regarding the dream time, a period both very long ago and present now in the dream world, which explains the world and affects it, Sargent understands very clearly that Wolfe's focus is on the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. Disappointingly, it took 12 years for another critic to capitalize on Sargent's reading and readdress the political mentions of the text. And then he, bring up, he brings up Albert Wendland's science myth and the fictional creation of alien worlds uh, that says Fifth Head of Cerberus raises questions over identity, personal morality, methods of government. So Wendland's argument not only focuses on the reversed outlook of object aborigine onto subject colonizer, but also the complicated interaction of object and subject, the inability to untangle the two that Wolf affects through his carefully balanced deployment of ambiguity. Importantly, Wendland recognizes that such ambiguity not only questions the certainty of most SF conclusions, which is the defining of the universe by the SF human explorers, the determination of the object by the subject, but also the whole concept of certainty itself, especially the assumed, self-contained, and separate integrity of individual subjects. So basically, he's saying that post-colonial critiques really need right to, to account the domination of those old ideas and their effects on Uh, going forward, right, even after the freedom from colonial um, interests. So at the end, he says, hence, there's need to reconsider the narrative in the light of post-colonial theories in order to illuminate the possible purposes and consequences of Wolf's elaborate and mesmerizing textual puzzle. However, and this is why I disagree with him, even at this stage, it is important to understand that the existence of the puzzle is more significant than its solution, since the puzzle is where the political arguments of the novel can be found. And this leads him to kind of declare this character who believes to be an aborigine impersonator as kind of the enlightened path to communion between the two cultures. And yet at the same time, from my reading, 
VRT has no self-awareness at all. There's there's nothing that he understands fully. He doesn't understand really what he is. So when I first approach Wolf, I like to say, okay, what are the structures in place that are going to reveal something important, right? And usually Wolf does this with several sophisticated methods. One of them I like to call synecdoche. Synecdoche is where you have a part that reflects on a whole. So in the very center of the middle novella, right, you'll remember this is the one with Sandwalker and Eastwind. Sandwalker has a little dream, right, and it features uh, flying feet. And in this dream, flying feet gets drowned under the water there, right? And so at the end, one of these characters is also going to be drowned in just such a fashion. Well, flying feet there kind of becomes a synecdoche that reflects on the larger story as a whole. And there's several of these in Wolf's novels, but I think that the whole center novella actually does this as well. Another term that might be more accurate, and it really fits for the French colonial images in this particular novella, but I have a hard time with the pronunciation. The Miss in a Beam, A-B-Y-M-E there at the end there. This is a scene embedded in something that can be kind of completely separate, but it's a reflection of the whole, right? So it's a small scene that reflects on the greater story. And I feel like when you look at that middle novella, this is what you have working here. Um, now, I do have a question for you guys, and then I'll give you my reading. Who do you think survives at the end between Sandwalker and Eastwind? One thing that struck us was that the answer to that puzzle could be solved by a simple check of the genitalia. Um, because yes, exactly. only you one. You have of, to look down and say, I don't have balls. <laughs> right, exactly. One of them is castrated, right? Our reading after reading VRT, I think, is that, well, I still don't know, to be honest with you. I want to say it's Eastwind, but I think VRT who we say has written this story, the the middle novella, would not have wanted to Eastwind to survive because he says, his his father says, Trenchard says, that he is descended from the Eastwind. And we know that right. Eastwind is castrated in the second novella. So if this charlatan figure, this, this huckster, is saying that he's coming from this line, it would have to be from the line of Sandwalker. But okay. I don't know if Trenchard knows what he's talking about either. Okay, excellent. Well, see, as I've said, in my readings of Wolf, everything is true. So when he says Eastwind survived, yes, Eastwind survived. And when he says, what is the difference between these two you've picked on? it, It's reproduction, right? So the center novella is both a history and it's also a personal story. Because how do we know that? Everyone is named John. We get that, that at the very beginning, right? Everybody's named John. It's about John V. Marsh, right? Everyone is named John because it's a personal story about what happens to him. And there's a scene there where Sandwalker is sitting with one of the shadow children, and they're talking about, when you're in prison, that's how political uh, revolutions start. And it's like, what is this talking about? How does this apply to anything in the novella? But we do know that Marsh himself is going to be in prison and be dealing with uh, number 47 above him, who's a political refugee. So this is almost like parataxis, where it's, it's not chronological. It's just this juxtaposition of something very jarring. And it doesn't matter because it's, it's mythical, but it still lets us know that, hey, this is not 
just about the situation on St. Anne a long time ago. This is about the life of John Marsh as well. And so I started to look at that and I said, okay, the difference between Sandwalker and Eastwind is reproduction. Okay, Sandwalker here from his very first inception is identified by his feet. That's his name, right? He's a walker. Um, when he's born, his feet touch the ground. And I would like to just look at that birthing scene very, very quickly, because one of my arguments here is that you can differentiate between the life cycles of the two species very, very easily. Okay, so cedar branches waving gives birth uh, to them. And this is like on page 86, 85, 86 here on uh, the orb edition. So bottom 85, the first came just at dawn because a wind rose as he fled the womb, a cold wind out of the eye of the first light across the mountains. His mother called him John, which only signifies a man, all boy children being named John. Eastwind. The second came not only as they are ordinarily born, that is, head foremost as a man climbs from a lower place into a high, but feet foremost as a man lets himself down into a lower place. His grandmother was holding his brother, not knowing that two were to be born, and for that reason his feet beat the ground for a time with no one to draw him forth. So if you look at the names of the characters in this center novella, you've got Eastwind, Sandwalker, Flying Feet, Leaves You Can Eat, Sweet Mouth, Bloody finger all of these names will by the end apply to the larger narrative in a particular way um bloody finger and um flying feet are the ones who send sandwalker out on his journey that's going to lead to his death well at the very end you're going to be the guy whose feet are kicked out from under him and there's going to be a bite involved as well. And that bite is also going to resonate with the bite that happened in the third novella. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But over and over, over the course of the center novella, Sandwalker is always described by the way he walks or the way he kicks or trying to do something with his feet. And in his dreams, which he has two of them, Suddenly his feet are unsteady. There's one where he's trying to follow his mother. And he's like, for the first time in my life, I, I couldn't find purchase for my feet. Um, and then later he'll have that dream where he's experiencing the drowning of flying feet. Such that at the very end, when one of them has their feet kicked out from under them, we should already be prepared to think about it in terms of this is the man who's identified by his feet, right? So just from that, I, I'm prone to say that Sandwalker is the one who dies. But there is a bigger reason for this, especially considering that reproductively they're very different. And so I want to go on just a little bit further on 86 here. So this is about cedar branches waving. Now, once again, cedar branches waving is a name that tells us to pay attention to what? What is waving at us? Trees are, right? So we should be kind of paying attention to this imagery that is that is um, repeated through here. She would have stood as soon as her sons were born, but her own mother would not permit it. You'll kill yourself, she said. Here, let them suck it once so you won't dry. Cedar branches waving took one in each arm, one to each breast, and lay back again on the cold sand. Her black hair as fine as floss made a dark halo behind her head. There were tear streaks from the pain. Her mother began to scoop the sand with her hands. When she reached that which still held the strength of the dead day's sun, she heaped it over her daughter's legs. Okay, so what has happened here? Cedar branches waving is extremely weak. So what does her mother do? She plants her 
eggs more or less so that she can absorb the nutrients from the sun. This should begin to give us an idea of the actual life cycle of these aborigines, given that there's all this sense that, oh, yes, when I was young, I was long and hid in the roots of trees, right? There's some innate relationship to trees that has been developed even in the first novella. And this continues, I mean, so much in the second one. There's, um, there's a point, as I said, at the very end where the tree almost seems to reach out for the falling boy if we believe that particular imagery. But even more interesting is that the anthropologist Marsh in the third novella identifies the entire aboriginal culture as the state that comes before the Paleolithic. And he calls it dendritic, or he says more accurately, pre-dendritic. Now, you guys, I'm sure, know that a dendrite can refer to a nerve branching, but really all a dendrite is, 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 is the tree, right? That's what it is. It's shaped like a tree. So when he says that the culture is pre-dendritic, he's actually saying that the living and walking and talking aborigines may eventually become something like a dendrite or a tree when I read this literally. And and the reason that this is significant is that in anthropology, there is no dendritic stage. This is something Wolf made up for this particular novella. This is something that's not real, right? So why is it there? So I want to ask you guys, what do you think it means when a culture is pre-dendritic? Thinking about it in parallel with Paleolithic or Neolithic, meaning... Right old stone or new stone, right. uh, we took the the dendritic part here to be standing in for that lithic part. So rather than referring to people who are using uh, stone for tools right. and using stone to, to build things with, to construct things with, this is people who are using wood from trees. Okay. Now, there's a dream that number five had um, at the very start, you know, in that first novella, and he was surrounded by columns and the only name that he could read on the column was Carapace. Later, when um, Sandwalker goes to that cave of the holy man, he will see a circle of those trees there. And then Marsh himself, when he goes with um, Trenchard and his son Victor, when they go to visit that same cave, they've all been cut down. And he says, imagine at one time it used to be just like a closed off encircling. Um, so... I really do think that those columns that number five dreamed about are directly related to that circle of trees, which he said clearly was not natural, right? There was something about it that seemed to be of uh, conscious construction. And so putting that together with those columns that surrounded number five, I've always taken the life cycle to be that they eventually develop a tree true light carapace and the other evidence for this actually comes with the girl that sandwalker meets on his path he meets a young girl who has a daughter right and that that daughter in the orb edition is called mary pink butterflies but in the ace edition which i prefer it's many pink butterflies so when he meets her so she's given birth there was nothing anywhere Pink butterflies was new, and I could not walk far. We slept up there, beyond the bent rock. She made a wretched little gesture with her shoulders. I have never known that, Sandwalker said, laying a hand on her arm. But I know how it must feel sitting alone, waiting for them to come when no one comes. It must be a terrible thing. You're a man. It will not come to you until you're old. 
And then they go off together, right? They start walking and, you know, he says, oh, we're all engendered in women by trees. They seldom want us to stay by then. And then on the very next page, right, it says how she starts to stumble before they get where they are going. And so when I read this literally, it reads to me like there's sexual dimorphism in the Aborigines. The men will experience the same difficulty walking, but even young women can't walk very well, right? They can't walk far. Their legs are injured. So when we look at the staff-like legs of, let's say, um, Phadria or Aunt Janine or uh, Celestine Etienne, right, who has legs that are, I think, at one point even compared to the legs of a heron or, or staffs. So when you see the, the female aborigine, they would also seem to have weak legs. And the sense that Sandwalker, too, is identified by his legs really made me think that this is something that characterizes the species as a whole, that he's a symbol for the reproductive method of the species. Now, there's a point where he is able to swim um, because he kind of takes on the characteristics of an otter. This is also mirrored in the third novella. There's a part where the boy, Victor Trenchard, goes in the water. And Marsh says, wow, he swims He swims like a seal, right? So you get the sense that what happens in the middle novella is also something that kind of happens in a symbolic way in the third one as well. And, of course, obviously, that final ending there, I think, is the most important one. Because... The shadow children are definitely the weirdest part of that second novella. I'm really invested in the life cycles of these guys. So I've been trying to suggest that the life cycle of the aborigines who are safe changers is that they have kind of a uh, larval form when they dwell in the roots of trees. They grow up, they take the shape of something humanoid, and then eventually they lose their mobility, whether they plant themselves and become trees or whether they just lose the function of their limbs or their lower extremities especially. Because one of the things that keeps happening, I don't know if you noticed it in the third novella, Everybody that he talks to has a problem with their legs, right? I don't know if you picked up on that. So he talks to Mrs. Blount, and then she describes these little things that are running around that she used to play with. They were always hungry. And she says, those are the aborigines, right? But I was born on Earth. I was the one who was born there. So she actually believes that she's born from a long time ago. But then he talks to Monsieur Coulot, right? The uh, I may say have said that wrong the trouser maker, the the clothing shop, right? A couple pages. So this is on page 156. Okay, and I, I really want us to pay attention to what he says about his ancestors. A few years before he died, he's talking about his grandfather. Let me think. Three years, I think, before his death, his, his grandfather talked about seeing the Aborigines. He was confined to his bed the year following. His death took him two years after. Okay, and he says, my grandfather had attended the funeral of a friend, and it had depressed his spirit, so he went for a walk. When he'd been but a little younger, he'd walked a great deal, you comprehend. Then, only a few years before the last illness, he ceased to do so. But now, because his heart troubled him, he walked again. I was playing draughts with my father, his son, and was present when he returned. And then we're going to skip down to the bottom of that paragraph, and he says... My father had both his legs gone in the war. It is fortunate for me, is it not? He did not lose certain other things as well. And then he says, but you know what? Mostly these aborigines look like, like the post of a fence or a dead tree, something of the sort. 
right? Sometimes like a man, sometimes like old wood. So that, that direct relationship between sometimes they look like a man, sometimes they look like old wood or the post of a fence. Um, and later when um, Marsh will talk with uh, Trenchard, right? He'll say, yeah, here in the back of the beyond, we have trees walking sometimes. And there's these other beasts, right? And so there's the sense that these trees in this world are not normal, right? That they're a part of that Aborigine life cycle. But the confusion comes when the shadow children start saying, hey, I thought we were long and lived in the roots of trees, and they can't really agree. And the reason that this happens is because the shadow children have this great empathic group mind, right? They say only the mind matters, right? And they seem to be many, but they're only one. And there's a part where they even believe that they're human beings, right? They're like, oh, we're from, you know, those old places like Gondwana land and, and these other continents. Their existence or their belief of their existence on Earth probably stems from that telepathic empathy that they have so that when they're outnumbered by, let's say, humans in orbit or the aborigines on the planet, um, they're conception of themselves is predicated upon how the other people view themselves, especially if they're a life, an organism that is different than they seem to be. Because this center novella, right, this synecdoche, it's an allegory of what happens later in that third novella. That's kind of the way that I read it, right? Sandwalker is an allegory for an aboriginal character. East Wind is an allegory for another means of reproduction. And so in the third novella, we see that there are mites which are caught in the wind and infect people. When... Um, when Sandwalker first comes upon the Shadow Children, they're feasting upon the corpse of a tick deer. Now, a tick is a type of parasite, right? And so the imagery that it's associated with this second novella, I think, needs to be viewed symbolically. Now, if I were going to view John Marsh as a symbolic character, how might I identify him in a story like this. Well, luckily, one of the, the groups of the Aborigines, they have the name Marshmen collectively. Um, in the Ace version, the name Marsh at the start of that novella is actually spelled Marsh, M-A-R-S-H. The C is missing. So in the Ace version, which I think is more definitive, Wolf I believe, purposefully misspelled his name to draw this parallel between Marshmen a little more strongly. And what happens to the Marshmen in this? There's a very memorable scene where Sandwalker fights them, and then um, actually somehow the Shadow Children wind up riding on their backs and controlling them and then sending them out to the other eye, right? There's a part where they kind of pluck out the eyes and then somehow they gain some autonomous control over those marshmen. So I think this is a pretty good synecdoche or allegory for what we get where in that third novella, right, Marsh, what's going to happen to him? Well, maybe he's going to be controlled by something that is not him because we do have the sense that if everything that happens is true, the boy has to die, the, to fall and die, right? Otherwise, that scene is just a lie. And I think that Wolf likes to structure these things in a layer of three, such that we have, you know, our basic reading where here's Marsh in prison. He's being persecuted by people who might or might not be Aborigines. We can't tell. Then the, the one underneath that where we say, okay, he's been replaced by the boy, whoever he was. And he might be an Aborigine or these people on the planet might be Aborigines persecuting him. My reading, the third reading, is that the boy actually dies 
on the planet that something else happens to Marsh and it involves that cat bite. Once he's bitten by the cat, that empathic gestalt infection of the shadow children that the cat carries infects Marsh such that he becomes another shadow child in the body of a man, his original body. So he is really Marsh. And because of that empathic connection that the shadow child cat had with um, Trenchard, right? Victor Trenchard, who fell to his death, he has Trenchard's memories as well. So this is a new being. This is something that has never been before. And the actual instigating moment for this is the cat bite, as we see in the final section of the novella, which is how Eastwind survives. Because how does, let's say, a bacterial parasite thrive? It infects something through that bite, right? And they talk about that bite so much. And actually, I think one of the most important little subtextual moments here third novella starts with a quote from a Carol um, Capek Carol Tropic, story. yeah. It's about a cat. The cat is the narrator, right? Cat's the narrator. Says, don't think I'm at all interested in you. You've warned me. Now I'll go out again and listen to the dark voices. Well, guess what? The cat is still the narrator for the whole novella, right? Like, the cat is Marsh by the end because he's that shadow child that's lurking there. And that that's paying, that's really pointing attention to it. The other thing that points attention to it is um, if you look, let's say when the ghoul bear first appears. So on page 228, if you look at that, the page breaks change from the three little dots to the two circles connected by a line to another two circles. Now, we've talked about um, the shadow children a little bit, but we really haven't talked about that metaphorical imagery associated with them. They are a constellation that is like two eyes peering in the night. And so here, right, where this is probably the place where something wonky is going to happen to Marsh. Either the boy is going to take his place or something else bad is going to happen. And this is actually where he starts to believe that there's someone else in the camp on 229. It all sounded reasonable enough. I still cannot show that that is not exactly what happened. And in fact, all that happened, I'm certain in my own mind, that he's lying, that someone other than the two of us was in camp while I slept. The boy has transparently been with a woman. It shows in everything he says and does. So this is the point where the cat starts following the camp there, and he's aware of it. And when he's in um, in that tree trying to like shoot the ghoul bear, he says, I knew as if by telepathy, right, that that that, that thing is in the camp. If he's there when I go down and I find them together, I'll kill them. Right. He kind of makes that claim there. And there's another story that occurs before this section ends, because the section starts with the two circles in the lines and then it goes to 235 and it has the two circles in the lines between it there as well. Right. And that's where he starts thinking, you know, there's an Anise girl among them. Right. And I couldn't I couldn't handle it if I saw them together on page 234. There's a little story about a native girl named Three Faces. And I just want to read that because this is where that very key dialogue between VRT, right, the boy, Victor Roy Trenchard, and Marsh. You're talking very well now. I think you're imitating me, aren't you? Yes, I've taught myself to speak as you do. Now listen, do you know Dr. Hagsmith? I'll do Dr. Hagsmith. In an excellent imitation of Hagsmith's voice. It's all falsity. Everything is false, Dr. Marsh. Wait, let me tell you a story. Once in the long dreaming days when Trackwalker 
was shaman of the abos, there was a girl called Three Faces. An abo girl, you see, and she used the colored clays the abos found by the river to paint a face on each breast. One face, sir, forever saying no, that was the left breast, and the other, the right, painted to say yes. She met a cattle drover in the back of beyond who fell very much in love with her. She turned her right breast toward him. Well, sir, they lay together all night in the pitch darkness that you find at night in the back of beyond, and he asked her to come and live with him, and she said she would, and learn to cook and keep house and do all the things human women do. When the sun rose, he was still asleep. When he got up later, she'd gone and washed herself in the river. That was forgetfulness in the tales, you see, and had only her one natural face. And when he reminded her of all the things she'd promised in the dark, she stood and stared at him and wouldn't talk. When he tried to take hold of her, she ran away. That's an interesting bit of folklore, Dr. Hagsmith. Is that the end of the story? No. When the drover began to dress himself after the girl was gone, he found he had the images of the two faces on his own chest, the yes face on his left side and the no face on his right. He put his shirt on over them and rode into Frenchman's Landing where there was a man who did tattoos, had him trace them with the tattoo needle. People say that when the drover died, the undertaker skinned his chest inside the coat, that he has the two faces of three faces preserved, rolled with cardamom in his desk drawer in the mortuary and tied with a black ribbon. But don't ask me if it's true. I haven't seen them. What I think this story is really about is also what's going to happen to Marsh here, right? He's the human being, and the cat and the boy are going to die. He's going to kill the cat. The boy is going to fall in that tree that is kind of his ancestral tree is going to reach out for him and not be able to save him. But the the faces of them, their personalities are going to be preserved through that cast cat bite because it's formed like this gestalt right and that's what we have narrating this marsh is both the boy and the cat so that shadow child understanding of the self is so vague and so hard to pin down because it's actually a gestalt microscopic organism how do we know that there's a scene where um I think it's Kulo is saying, oh, there's children. Don't ask me how small children are. And later Marsh says, oh, yeah, the shadow children who raise, rise up in the vapor from the pond. It's almost like they float in the air. So Eastwind, right, and the might that they talk about in that third volume that's a parasite, that's indicative. His survival is indicative of the actual reproductive method that succeeds and survives at the end of the novel. It is a shadow child life cycle, one of infection and um, kind of assimilation of an identity that survives and believes itself to be Sandwalker, right? Because Eastwind, after he kills his brother and says, I've spoken, he, he says, wow, my, my arm hurts a little bit. There's this pain in his arm there from the bite. So he was the one who was bitten. And we think, okay, that, that arm pain isn't really from flagellating uh, last voice there. It's because he was bitten and then believed himself to be Sandwalker. And the dream that Sandwalker has of being dead, um, Eastwind told him earlier, you know, you might get the chance to live in my dreams someday, right? Such that that's what's going to happen. It's, I don't feel that that ending is, is very ambiguous, but I do feel that Wolf never really expected people to piece together any kind of life cycle between these these two disparate species. And the question is whether they're related or not, right? So, so much of my reading is invested in the speciation. How does it work? Um, and there's, there's a couple other examples of things blowing in the wind and talk about the shadow children. But the song, I think, is important as a metaphor because they said, okay, imagine you extend your hand outwards, right? That's what we shape. 
that power beyond the hand. Now, now make the hand disappear. And he's like, that's not anything that's real. He said, that's everything, right? That's what holds the universe together, such that they occupy a space without having a body. Um, and what was really interesting, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, was that when there's one shadow child, its name is Wolf. I thought that was kind of fun um, when we look at the first novella there with, with, with Wolf as possibly the narrator of the first one as well, so that we have this story that might be narrated by Wolf from start to finish, right? That's what kind of that's, that's hinting at, where we have, you know, when there's one shadow child, it's, it's named Wolf. Uh, so I think that's another little metatextual joke that Wolf was having at our expense there. So my big scheme here is that there's two different species. They have two very different life cycles. And Eastwind and Sandwalker are metaphors for the reproductive cycles that actually survive. But nobody really talked about, you know, all these trees and what they were doing or what actually those shadow children were, right? When they say, hey, our song shakes uh, extension. They say the song goes into someone and then it's strengthened because that singer starts to sing. When Sandwalker first meets them, he starts to weep. And he says he tries to add something of his own to the song, but he can't. Um, and eventually he just joins the song itself. So I think that the song is a metaphor for infection, right? You're infected by it. You try to maintain your own identity for a time, and then it kind of just blends together into that Gestalt personality that, that blurs you know, your individual contribution to the group norm. So whatever the group norm is, is what the shadow child then becomes. Is your reading then that the dream that number five has about the carapace, is that then meant to be read symbolically into the following novels? Is it is it just there for kind of symbolic symmetry? Or does it have some real purpose in the original Fifth Head novella? So I guess the, the question is, how does that dream connect meaningfully right. rather than symbolically to what we get in VRT? Let me just deal with, uh, we may have talked about this in our, in our you know, uh, a couple months ago when, when, when we talked about that first novella, but... In, in that talk of the dreams, there was wood all the time, a big wooden toy that he was fighting, a wooden ship he was trying to pilot. Um, and Wolf had already established that he had associated those aboriginal girls or just the people on the planet were somehow associated with trees somehow in that. So in that, I think you see the carapace, yes, he's trapped within it as well. But it was already, I think, part of Wolf's idea that this was also enveloped in their life cycle because the trees that appear and disappear at the um at the his father's brothel right that's also indicative of the girl's life cycle i mean there's 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 a sense that when you look at all these trees they're doing something and he's trapped in a society that really is aboriginal in nature and i think wolf had planned that from the very start but he then built it a little further so for example when um mary blunt talks about the children that survived, the French children, they're all scarred and they're all missing, they're missing limbs, they're missing legs, and they're scarred and burnt. When you see those three guys arresting um, Marsh on St. Croix, guess what? They have these burns and scars on their head as well, right? Such that there's, there's a pattern, a motif of alienness, and this is associated with the Aborigines in their rituals as well. Um, so it's hard to say, hey, those scars on the head, they're, they're totally not related. So I think that the, the carapace columns are intrinsically related to Wolf's idea of the Aborigines trapping 
number five and his family there. But the whole society is trapped, too. It's not going anywhere because it's all based on them. That planetary face that those three men have, they have built themselves off of the remnants of humanity. And the only remnants that are there, by and large, are probably number five and and his, you know, the, the clones that came before him. So you have this sense of this terrible symbiosis that just doesn't work anymore. No new buildings have been built there for 200 years. Um, but everything is, is falling apart. It's decayed. It's hellacious. There's, there's even when, you know, those three guys tell... Um, what Celestine Etienne, oh, if you have any questions, you can apply at the Department of Sewers to ask about me, right, when they arrest Marsh that way. This society doesn't function at all. It's like a bad parody of a Kafkaesque government, right? It's like this this sense that they think they understand what they're doing, but a trash man or a bicycle um, delivery man, they don't become secret agents on Tuesday. You know, it's not like the life of the Cameroy where everybody does everything on a certain day. Um, you know, if, if I mentioned Lafferty in his in his story about their education, I think Wolf kind of based their their jobs, right, the way their job is structured on on that on that short story by Lafferty, but. There is an innate relationship between the dreams, but I think Wolf had not fully fleshed out the, like the shadow children. I can't find any presence of shadow children in that first novella. So I think, you know, there's the sense that there's Aborigines who can take the shape of others. And Wolf knows, right, he has the idea that, hey, everyone on this planet has already, their, their shape has already been um, sequestered, right? So that number five is the only human and he's trapped in this thing, right? So it's a carapace both to the aliens, the aborigines, and to the human who's in the system as well. Fantastic. That's a wonderful answer. The next question I have has to do with the hands of VRT. In our reading of the story, this problem with his hands is something he probably inherited from his father, who seems to be extremely arthritic or has some real problem Mm -hmm. with his hands and using tools uh, that and 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 this had a massive effect on VRT's upbringing. His father lost his job and couldn't work anymore, and VRT seems to have inherited this problem with his hands. And to me, this goes into the whole myth uh, on some level about the Aboriginals' inability to use tools, or at least the continued myth, because we do see this. Uh, thing pop up two times. This historical event called Running Blood, where there was like this test for mm-hmm. people about whether use or not they could use a shovel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and all of this is VRT saying, because I can't use tools and my hands are broken, this is a reinforcement of my identity. These stories my mother told me growing up and the time we spent alone when, you know, our father was mm-hmm. carousing or being a drunk and she didn't want me around him. Um, this is more confirmation that I am an Aboriginal. And right. we see after the cat bite, that the handwriting changes in the journal. And we know from the beginning of VRT that the handwriting of VRT is absolutely terrible. Right. So our reading, I think, is that this this is more of VRT taking over that journal. But I think I just want you to clarify. I think I know what you're going to say here, but I yes. would love for you to clarify why the handwriting shifts apart from the cat bite and why it continues to be terrible in prison if it is the case that... Uh, this person in prison is John V. Marsh. Right. Okay. So 
I, I'm basically saying that Marsh, the human body, right? Marsh by himself is is no more. He's dead. Now what we have is a conglomeration of the three. You have Trenchard's personality dominant sometimes. After he tells this, this story in prison about remembering his mom and going to the river and blah, blah, blah. That's clearly from Victor. He says, and then I thought about my parents on Earth. He has he has both memories of childhood there. Um, and he, he, you know... What, 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 what happens, the reason that the father's hands are bad is because he is an aborigine. He's just like everybody's an aborigine there, that whether they know it or not. So he may be just imitating that. Maybe he doesn't know, right? But there's the sense that it's not a homogenous culture. And this is one of the last things that, um, that Marsh thinks about. He's with Leaves Postulate, right? That part, he's like, is it really the case that, uh, oh, here we go. It's on page 238. I'm going to read this and then answer your question. She believed, and he's talking about Aunt Janine, though she pretended not to, that the Anis have devoured and replaced Homo sapiens. Veal's hypothesis, and she is Veal. It has been used for years to discredit other heterodox theories about the original population of St. Anne. But who then, taunt Janine, are the free people? Conservatives who would not desert the old ways? The question is not, as I once thought, how much the thoughts of the shadow children influence reality, how much our own do. I've read the interview with Mrs. Blount a hundred times while I was in the hills, and I know who I believe the free people to be. I call it Lee's postulate. I am Lee's and I have left. If we go to page 154 in that interview, she says uh, about the French people, right? And then it says, she says, Anise, what's the Anise? Oh, them. We called them the Abos or the wild people. They weren't really people, you know, just animals shaped like people. Of course I've seen them. Why, when I was a child, I used to play with the children, the little ones, you know. Ma didn't want me to, but when I was out playing alone, I'd go out to the back of our pasture. They'd come and play with me. Ma said they'd eat me. But I can't say how they ever tried. Wouldn't they steal, though? Anything to eat, they were always hungry. They got to taking out of our smokehouse, and one night, Pa killed three right between the smokehouse and the barn with his gun. One was one I'd played with sometimes, and I cried. That's the way a child is. No, I don't know where he buried them, or if he did, just dragged them out back for the wild animals, I suppose. So, while it's possible that the, the, the ones who are still living out in the wilderness there are aborigines... Maybe they're actually shadow children, right? That that's the thing that's living out there and that there are different species in the Aborigines so that nobody knows who they are anymore. Everybody is totally confused about this. So I guess if I had to say this is Lee's postulate, Lee's, Lee's postulate might be that either, well, humans have retreated out to the back of beyond, but they don't seem – when that, when that cat drags that little an, um, animal with human-like teeth – to him at the very end, it seems to be very small, right? I don't think that's a human. So I would say that probably they're infected shadow children hosts and that those are the things living out there, believing themselves to be aborigines at this point, such that we've had this slippage of racial identity. So the father, the trenchard, his hands went bad because he actually is aboriginal and eventually all their hands are going to be bad. Uh, the boy's hands... He's a bad writer. Well, part of his is, is assimilated into the new body, but also it's not Marsh and it's not him. It's the infection, right? It's that gestalt um, that, that it's like a group organism now that's controlled by kind of that external force. So it does a bad job. It can't control it precisely. And maybe, the, maybe there is a part of him that's trenchered that's coming to the fore, 
But I think that because that's the one that really wanted to live, right, he's gone. But uh, I do think that it just it doesn't control its human host very well because the host is going to die. That's one of the things that they talked about, right? Is this poison in your jaws? Is it going to kill, you know? And so that might that infects people on St. Croix that floats on the wind. They say, hey, eventually it kills its host. So it lives for a time. So he, he's damaged by this, and he can't function normally. That's kind of my, my answer as far as that goes. Something that occurs to me as you're explaining your point of view uh, and your reading of this story is the question of the green eyes. Do you think the, the green eyes is a sign of the infection of the shadow children? There definitely is a scene where he shoots the caribou, a carabao, however you say that, and this is also another point where the Ace version is superior. The Orb, the Orb edition says it's 15 pounds. The Ace edition says it's 1,500 pounds, which makes more sense of their problem, right? Um, so, yes, he looks at the eyes of the creature, and it's like this doubled pupil, right? And so in the middle novella, when they take control of the Marshmen, the Shadow Children do it by grabbing them pretty much by the eyes. And so when he first runs into them, when, when Sandwalker first runs into them, he starts weeping. And then at the end, the one who survives asks, what's the color of my eyes? And they say, green. Green is the color of eyes. Yes, I do think it's indicative of an infection and that the carabao kind of shows that um, there's something with the eyes that we should pay attention to. Also, the two pits, right? The eye and the other eye. Uh, and, and so... What looks like eyes, the Shadow Children constellation up in the sky also looks like eyes. Yes. I want to go back, actually, to uh, ask you a couple a couple of follow-up questions on things sure. that you've said in your reading. Uh, the first thing I... I want to ask you about just to just to state a little more clearly the the person who is writing this journal in the prison. Can you identify maybe succinctly what that person thinks leaves post postulate is? And, 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 and I think the question I'm really interested in here is, is how you think that derives from Mary Blunt's story. And I, what I should say here to prep for that is that Brandon and I uh, had a bit of a disagreement about this uh, in the okay. episode that we covered that. So you, you can be settling a score here. Okay. So I think, well, it, it's Veal's hypothesis backwards, which like, okay, does that mean that the humans have fled into the back of beyond? I mean, that's that's one of these weird, weird reversals that doesn't make any sense. Veal's hypothesis is the Aborigines replace the humans and think they're human. I think that Leaves' hypothesis is that the Shadow Children infected everything on St. Anne out there in the wilderness and believe themselves to be whatever it is that they've infected. So if they infect the Aborigines, they think they're the Aborigines. So when he says, I'm leave and I'm left, uh, the thing that is infected then is is Marsh, and he's no more uh, to some degree. So, I mean, I, I... But you know what? I would... If you put a gun to my head, I would ask, boy, I sure hope those chambers are empty because I don't think I have a great answer for this one, honestly. What do you guys think? Well, we disagreed on this. Uh, I think both Brandon and I felt that, yes, Clearly, the wordplay and even just the the context of this indicates that it is meant to be either the inverse or the reverse of Vale's hypothesis. But we had a hard time, or at least I had a hard time, uh, accepting any reading of that that actually is dependent and and only uh, derived from uh, Mary Blunt's story. And this is where Brandon and I uh, disagreed. Right. Uh, and but again, I have no good reading for that. You know, the only information I had about, is that 
there is Vale's hypothesis and there is Mary Blunt's story. And I was told to figure out uh, what is the inverse or the reverse of Vale's hypothesis from Mar- only Mary Blunt's story. I, I could not could not do it. So I also would hope those barrels are empty. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, this is the thing. I, I want to do look at what she says as a whole. Right. Just because maybe something will jump out to us, even though I doubt it. So this is starts on 153. Where was I born? On the ship. Yes, I was the first that was born on the ship and the last born on the old world. How'd you like that, young man? Women that was expecting wasn't to come on board, you see, though lots of them did, as it turned out. My ma, she wanted to go. She decided not to say anything about her condition. She was a heavy woman, as you may imagine. I guess I was a small little baby. Yes, they had physical examinations for all that was going But that had been months and months before because the blasting off was delayed, you see. All the woman was to wear these coveralls and that they called space clothes just like the men. Ma felt I was coming, told them she wanted hers loose in the devil take style, so they didn't know. She was having pain, she said, when she come up in the gantry, but the doctor on the ship was one of them and didn't say nothing to anybody. I was born, and he put her and me to sleep the way they did, and when we woke up, it was 21 years afterward. The ship we come on was the 986, which was not the first one, one of the more earlier them. I've heard that before they used to have names for them, which I think would be prettier. Yes, There was still quite a few French left here when we came. Most all except the littlest children had their arms or legs gone or was scarred terrible. They knowed they had lost and we knowed we'd won. And our men just took land and stock, whatever they wanted, and that's what Ma told me later. I was just small, you know, and didn't realize nothing. When I was growing up, those little French girls that had been too small to fight was growing up too. And weren't they the cutest things? They got most of the handsome boys, you know, and all the rich ones. You'd go to a dance in your prettiest dress and one of those Frenchies would come in just in rags, you know, with a ribbon and a flower in her head and every boy's head would turn. And then she goes on to tell the story about playing with the really small ones and her father killing one. So... First off, I think that those French children there with missing legs, I mean, we have to almost view them as at least possibly aboriginal in nature because there's something exotic about them, right? And they turn the head of men. And this is something that the creature, who whatever it is, whether it's Abba or Shatterchild, that is um, Victor's mother, is able to make herself attractive when she wants to be, right? That's what she can do. That's one of her abilities. And in sleep, that power goes. And here we see that reflected. Um, But I do think that the children that she's talking about playing with, we almost have to construe them as shadow children, right? And such that the the identity has truly blurred. It's It's like a spinning wheel of identification. You dial it up and wherever it stops, okay, now I guess we're Aborigines, right? Even though before we were shadow children. So that confusion of race, I think, has to be tied up and leaves postulate somehow. And I agree that the children and the French children to me uh, are tied together in her mind in some way, and that there's some confusion about the kinds of questions she's being asked. I know Glenn's reading, and, and it's one I've kind of come around to a little bit, is rooted in the, the number of times it's repeated, especially in VRT, that the abos are referred to as animals, as just animals. Mm-hmm. Here, they're referred to that as uh just Animals by uh, Mrs. Blunt. And later on in the prison journal, VRT or John Marsh or this new creature refers to them as just the free people as animals. They are just mm-hmm. animals. And this is this is for us like a watershed moment where he is breaking down his fantasies, his beliefs, and coming to terms with the facts that led to his imprisonment, his right. willful ignorance of reality in a lot of ways. And so Leaves Post Postulate, to me, 
um, my first reading is that these are the the wounded French children of the war, and that they have to live in the woods because they're disenfranchised. There's no place for them in society. Potentially, there was some kind of nuclear event that happens, and that this type of disrespect for the first wave, the the way they're treated, the father is just killing these children and explains to Mrs. Blunt that they were just animals. They're not real people and there's no reason to cry. I think Glenn has mm-hmm. a, had a slightly different reading of that, that they actually are, as Mrs. Blunt says, just animals shaped like people, though that's a little confusing. One thing I want to want to emphasize real quickly is that Marsh calls himself a child and an animal. He says, hey, I'm innocent. I need to be let go because I'm a child and an animal. And I, I take that literally to say I'm a shadow child. But I mean, he says uh, he has this spurious argument. I've never owned property. Nobody treats me like an adult. And then if I were not an animal, I wouldn't be caged in this particular way. Well, the shadow children, right, when I say the ghoul bear is tracking him or, you know, the, the cat is there, I'm saying that they really are. They take on the, the form of animals. They infect animals as well, such that if, if there's any alien species that could be called animal, I think it's the shadow child one. And that the aborigines believe themselves to be separate. But it's really hard to distinguish because I feel like people are talking about different things when they use those words over the course of the novel. Um, another thing that I really want to talk about, about whether these could possibly be French children or not, um, involves a, a huge, huge difference between the ace version and the orb version. And because of, um, you know, the, the poundage being correct, some words being spelled correctly, I really prefer the ace older edition. And this comes at the very end when the colonists finally land. Okay, so this is page 141 in the Orb edition. So Sandwalker supposedly um, is going down there, even though I am pretty certain it's East Wind, right? And this is the last paragraph. The mist was burning away. Sandwalker looked where the shadow child pointed and saw that where the river joined moaning ocean, a green thing was bobbing in the water. Three men with their limbs wrapped in leaves stood on the sand near it, pointing at the stranded body of Last Voice and talking a speech Sandwalker did not understand. When he came close to them, they extended their hands, open and smiled. But they did not understand what open hands meant or had meant once, that they held no weapons. His people had never known weapons. That night, Sandwalker dreamed that he was dead, but the long dreaming days were over. So in the Ace version, it says, but they did not understand that open hands meant that they held no weapons. This was changed in every other version, but he, Sandwalker, did not understand that open hands meant that they held no weapons. Grammatically, of course, it has to be he. Thematically, I think, when you look at the implication of this, the switch has already occurred. The instant the Frenchmen land, they are accosted, taken over, destroyed. They're done. And the Aborigines have taken their place, more or less. And they're doing something they don't even understand the implication of in this reading. Uh, So I, I feel like this is one of those key moments that a copy editor could possibly change. Another one of these happened in Exodus from the Long Sun, in which the narrator reveal is changed by a copy editor. Um, It comes a lot earlier. When I asked Wolf about it, he didn't know about the change, and he was actually really, really mad. So um, I I feel like he, he I asked about this, but he never answered. He didn't give me an answer one way or the other here. But I think we have to view the possibility that they, the Frenchmen, 
were immediately made irrelevant and never actually flourished on the planet, but were just kind of templates and their culture spread, but they were destroyed. Mark, I want to follow up uh, about a story by John V. Marsh, this middle novella here. You've taken the, the content of that uh, very seriously uh, and, and very uh, symbolically as mm-hmm. exist, really existing in the speculative world in some way. But I don't, yet have, I don't have a sense of what you think about the existence of that story as a, a text or as an artifact in the world. Is this something that does physically exist in the world of the story, or is it only something that exists for us, the the readers? Yes, it exists in the world of the story, and Marsh is thinking about writing it, like on page 245, 246. So he goes into the mountains, and he says, I sit here with the book in my lap, try to think about the life of the free people here before men came from earth. These hills are hard and bare. No one would live here if they were better land. It may be the mountains, the temporals, as they're called, are better. For the present, I have no way of knowing. Certainly the low hills through which we've come were better, even the meadow mirrors. Why, then, did the free people live in the mountains, as they surely did if the old stories are to be trusted? Did they ever come here? Do they come now? I believe they do. That's another subject. If ever they came here, it was not often. And so he starts thinking about the marsh and the free people. So this is where, whether it's, um, you know, the memories of Trenchard inspiring him, because these are the stories that the boy Victor told, right? He said, oh, and these are the constellations up there, you know, naming them. And so he used the information he got from Trenchard's personality, and he wrote it, whether in jail, when he had the paper, that's what he wants. He's like, what do you want? I want more paper, right? So yes, I think it's something he wrote after the bite. I've got one more question that I want to talk to you about. I'm, I'm interested in what you know about Wolf's process of writing the second two novellas, writing a story by John V. Marsh and writing VRT after the, the first novella when he's been commissioned, basically, to do this. Did he right. work on them simultaneously or did he write one of them first and derive the idea for the other from that one? Do you know anything about this? I cannot say with absolute certainty, but I'm I'm almost positive that the first one, you know, was established and written, and then the second two were written as a pair together that don't really work independently. Um, you know, titling it by John V. Marsh and the way Marshmen are in it, the way that it actually, I think, that second novella finishes the story of the third. Because I don't think it's just like an incidental story. I think it is a narrative of what happens that we don't have. It's just hidden in metaphor. Um, so yeah, I think that they're innately tied together and that there's no separating the second and the third, but that the first one can be read independently and that it's more thematically cohesive, right? In a way it is about number five and, and that self-obsession where, you know, I want to go forward, but, but the second and third one, it really takes, okay, a different look, an external look of the aliens and the aborigines and says, well, let's, let's spin this just a a little bit, such that number five is no longer no longer the center, but the Aborigines, the Shadow Children, Marsh, um, and the system of 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 Saint Croix, right? Everything that's going on there in that government, um, which is so uh, you know just decadent and and ineffective, uh, becomes you know really a central portion. So I think it's less personal than that first novella, but I think you can't look at these last two except as a pair. Uh, and some people have said that. Um, you know, St. Anne is like a paradise before the coming of humanity. Actually, that's, that's I think, the worst argument that Peter Wright makes in that, in that essay that I read part of at the start. His, his position is that 
humans coming ruined the peaceful paradisical existence but if you look it's already brother killing brother before the humans ever set down you can't blame humans for this one and that's part of the problem with um the post-colonial the pure post-colonial reading of this is you can't even pinpoint who the human exactly is without doing a lot of work first i mean you know to point the finger at humanity versus this aboriginal culture maybe humanity stopped by and was instantly eradicated right such that hey there's a dim vestige of their memory and maybe these people are living an echo of that but it's really hard to to point the finger and say yes right this is your fault augustus caesar this is your fault napoleon this is this is you coming in and destroying us because we don't even know who the winner is really and that's um that's one of those moments where you know imperialism is an indictment of the person on top and who is on top here? Uh, so, so that makes talking about this thematically more difficult than other books and other authors in the post-colonial tradition, I think. So I have a question then about your reading of The Sh- Shadow Children in the second novella, where they are somehow receiving the memories of Earth from the spaceships that are searching for these other planets in the Milky Way galaxy, that somehow they have shrouded these two planets from the sight of humans, but at the same time, they have some telepathic connection with the humans such that they understand humanity. The Shadow Children say things, you know, like, you know, in the, first of all, in the voice of John Marsh or VRT or the, the Gestalt uh, figure that our political movements are born in prison. But they also Great. say things to the shadow children about how their noble form wrapped in glory with their, you know, mighty boomsticks, which is, you know, not, not really mm-hmm. what they say, but, um, you know, coming around and colonizing this planet are what caused a certain change in the abos to begin with this imitation right and it seems to me they're making a point that they are human they are from earth which is the fighting lizard which is obviously the image of the dragon which is which is uh, satanic in some way so i just wonder how you i don't know how you combine all that information to right if the shadow children are not human in the second book is this the shadow children infection exploring the consciousness of the two humans that it's assimilated or do you have another sense of what's going on there so this is the hardest part of the book for me because in the first novella david you know has that idea he's like well there's this pre-greek uh, exploration that goes out and colonizes these planets you know like that there's human beings in, in in ancient ancient times that actually colonize these planets and i think since i believe that these shadow children are microscopic organisms that can infect others, that perhaps they are spread across the width and breadth of the galaxy, and that for a time they did um, infect human beings before coming here. But the other possibility is that David's somehow statement, whether it's just in jest or not, is right. They land here and then divergent evolution or devolution occurs such that they are no longer human and they shrink to those little tiny, tiny things um, that have, you know, human teeth and round ears and are kind of hairless by developing mental powers over time through eating the plants, right? Which are ironically, now the weirdest part, and this is something else that's weird. So the, the, the trees I'm saying are the last stage of the life cycle of the Aborigines, but the shadow children seem and other things seem to be eating the leaves 
of those plants to make that poisonous thing that lives in their veins. That's it's almost eggs, right? They say, oh, this is how you become God by chewing these leaves. So that maybe the things in the blood are just a smaller non-differentiated version of the aboriginal tree life cycle as well. So you can't tell if it's like, okay, two completely different species, if it's divergent evolution from one common human path. And then he talks about Dolo's law at one point, right? Where once you lose the use of something, evolution has to come up with another way to do the same thing, but it's not the same way. So like you lose the use of your hands because of your mental powers or whatever. And then all of a sudden you have to adapt a different way because your hands aren't coming back. Um, in the same way. So I, I'm going to take a pass on a firm answer on this one because I feel like we just don't have enough information to know whether humans ever came here and then diverged into the shadow children or if it's just the mental powers of the shadow children. And once upon a time, they encountered sentient humans because their their mental abilities can extend throughout the galaxy. And so they know about living and, and intelligent beings just from their, their existence and their very nature. Something that actually hadn't occurred to me before listening to you present this and, and, and having read your write above this in Between Light and Shadow, it had never occurred to me before this very moment that if if your reading is correct and that the, the shadow children are this uh, microscopic parasite, we know that there are spaceships that have been traveling back and forth between mm-hmm. this system and Earth. So these things must mm-hmm. be on Earth by now as well. Yep. Well, now that's terrifying, and this story has taken on a whole new dimension for me. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I would like to commission Wolf to, to write a sequel about, about the Shadow Children uh, invading and infecting Earth. Right, because you get the sense that they're on St. Croix, and, and actually there's the mite that floats, you know, that makes the net um, that they sell. But there's also the scene where the officer has sex with Casilla. And he bathes right afterward. He said he liked removing her saliva from him. And he says it, it's it's in the text as prophylactic, right? And then while that can mean a lot of things, there's also the reproductive um, idea of prophylactic. This is preventing some life cycle from continuing. It's preventing that impregnation or that, that gestation. Um, so, you know, when, when prophylactic is used, I think it's not just the sterile use. It also implies the same way we use prophylactics here. Um, and, and one thing that we did talk about last time is, is, uh, the changes in the, in the, in the, the first novella. Well, another big one in the second, and I think I touched on it a little bit is that Mary Pink Butterflies' name, the, the daughter of seven girls waiting is many pink butterflies in that second one. Well, when you look at the first novella, the names of the girls that we talked about, Nerissa, Phaedria, you know, th- those those were species names for moths and butterflies. So I think that when Wolf does that, showing the, the young daughter as many pink butterflies, you get all those pink supposed human beings on the planet, right? And they're actually just the adult form of a, a metamorphic creature that has that larval stage and then transforms into, into something else. And so the magic of the larva to change things and to... And to make uh, a being whole again, I think is pretty clearly delineated in the second volume. And so I think that there's a larval stage to their life cycle and then they kind of mature into the adult being that they're going to be. And that for the most part, for a long time, that's been human looking and they just kind of are in denial of that entire stage of their life cycle. Um, So I think the mini is important thematically as well, rather than Mary. And some critics have actually said all the girls are named Mary, but there's no textual evidence for that. The only evidence is that 
every boy is named John in the second novella because it's all about John Marsh, really. That's how I take that. The, the only real evidence to take Mary as uh, being John uh, is, one, a preference for symmetry, uh, but then also the fact that she is never actually referred to as many again, just the same way that John is dropped from everyone right. else's name, but you, it doesn't ever appear again. So we don't, we have no way of knowing yeah. that for sure. I, I just want to say that, you know, Real quickly, when I look at Wolf's work, right, I read it a couple times and I see what I don't understand, right? And I'm like, I don't understand this. And then I try to, you know, read it until I understand it. But then I also start to do some research. But sometimes a certain embedded story will click and I'll realize that, okay, this is actually in the narrative, even though it's not really the narrative because it's symbolically telling me what happens. And the only way that I can make that middle novella really fit in with the entirety of the book is to view it as both history and a continuation of Marsh's story on the parts that we don't necessarily get. So I view those embedded, you know, sentokic moments as actual textual um, conclusions. So you think, okay, this is ambiguous. But when I think you understand these things as symbolic, the ambiguity tends to fade away. Now, not all of it, obviously, but at least the what happened here aspect of it, or who died or who lived. Because, I mean, I am... I'm willing to, you know, die on the hill that Eastwind is the one who actually survives. And I'm willing to tell you, you know, what the implication of that is. And so when people say that Wolf is intentionally ambiguous, I think he's intentionally tricky and that he doesn't necessarily believe that everybody will figure out this stuff, but that he tries to include a narrative conclusion as well in even the most um, ambiguous of his stories. It's just we need to recognize it as such and start to think of it as either the metaphorical becoming literal or the literal becoming symbolic. And so I think that's that's just an important uh, aspect of the way that I approach Wolf. But otherwise, I really don't have too much else to say, except I really appreciate the time you've given me to talk at ad nauseum about this. And I really love the work that you're doing here. So keep up the excellent work. Well, thank you, Mark. And it's our pleasure always to have you on and talk uh, about what you think of Wolf's work. Well, Mark, we'll just thank you again for coming on the show, and uh, we hope that we'll get a chance to talk to you again before too long. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Well, I can't think of a, a better way to have concluded our coverage of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, but even just saying conclusion of our coverage of Fifth Head of Cerberus uh, has me feeling a little sad, a little down. We've been living with this book for almost a year I'm not even sure that I know what to do with myself with this book actually on the shelf and not uh, sitting in a backpack or on a coffee table or open at my desk. It's been a really, really long journey, but I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, reading these books slowly and closely and engaging with our community online has been a real pleasure. Yeah, as enjoyable as this book was, the the labor of this was uh, exhausting at, at times, while also being absolutely exhilarating. And I think that we're both both ready to to get on to reading some more Gene Wolfe short stories, and then looking ahead to covering Peace and The Devil in a Forest. I will be very excited to get to all of those. So we'll be back on July 23rd with the first short story in our next batch of stories. Now, we don't know what that is yet because we don't live in Newtonian time and we don't yet have the results of the Patreon vote that makes these decisions for us. But if you're reading along with us, you'll be able to find that listed on the podcast page on our website, claytemplemedia.com. And I can't encourage you enough to go and check out Mark's books and videos. He has really done 
so much work uh, for the community of Wolf fans, for science fiction readers. Reading Mark's work on Wolf is such an absolute delight. And I just have to tell you, please get a copy of Between Light and Shadow. Check out some of his online videos as you've just experienced for yourself. He's an incredible scholar. And if you'd like to support our show, please check us out on Patreon. And until next time, we greet you and say farewell.